The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. If we're thinking about democracy as something broader that is producing equality, justice, or these kind of things, that often those kind of policies that we might describe as democratic policies can emerge from processes that are undemocratic. And I think that's uncomfortable for us to think about. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the democracy paradox. Is secrecy a danger to democracy? Is transparency and openness always better for democratic deliberation? And how does secrecy and transparency change how we think about representation itself? These are some of the questions discussed in today's episode. We talked to Caitlin Carter. She is an assistant professor of history over at Notre Dame University and the author of one of the absolute best books of the year. It's called Democracy and Darkness, Secrecy and Transparency in the Age of Revolutions. She takes a very simple idea, expands upon it, and in so doing, challenges what we think we know about democracy. This is a conversation about the ways secrecy and transparency are used in representative government. Transparency comes up in a lot of discussions about democracy. However, Caitlin shows how ideas about both secrecy and transparency shaped how we thought about representation itself. The examples come from two historical episodes. We talk about the republics in the United States and France in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. However, you'll find the implications of the ideas that we discuss still have relevance for today. Now, I want to give a really big thank you to everyone listening on Spotify. They released their end-of-the-year numbers last week, and the podcast is up big. We're up 128% in listeners, 148% in streams. That's kind of like downloads. It's the number of times that people actually listened to an episode for a certain amount of time and 126% in followers. If you're using Spotify, make sure to leave a five-star rating. The show already has 80 ratings, and they're all five-star. It would be amazing to get to 100. If you have questions or comments, whether it's about listening on different platforms, about this episode, or really anything else, send me an email to jkempf at democracyparadox.com. But for now, here is my conversation with Caitlin Carter. Caitlin Carter, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, Caitlin, I absolutely love the book. I thought it was so, so novel. The book is called Democracy and Darkness, Secrecy and Transparency in the Age of Revolutions. 
So wanted to kind of start out by asking you about one of the subjects. I mean, it's a historical book, talks about the American Revolution and the French Revolution. So let's start out with the American Constitutional Convention. We all know that it was held in secret, and a lot of books admit to the fact that it's held in secret, but they kind of just brushed over that. It's just kind of mentioned and then and just accepted. So why don't you explain why it was held in secret? Like, what was the purpose to that? Was there any advantage to that? Yeah, absolutely. As you note, and most books that write about the Constitutional Convention, you know, note that it happened behind closed doors. Often it's kind of a line or it's a footnote. And I took that and I thought, I feel like this needs a little more explanation (laughs) and maybe thinking about both the reasons behind that and also the effects of the convention having met in secret. So there are a few reasons. For one thing, legislative or deliberative bodies meeting behind closed doors in the 18th century was not all that unusual. So in that sense, they're following precedent. But there's sort of an awareness that that's changing by the 1780s. So the House of Commons in England, for example, they started letting reporters into their meetings officially in 1771 and allowing them to publish records of their debates. And they did this very grudgingly. They were sort of forced into that. They weren't necessarily happy about it. But that had changed. And then you had different states that had started in their legislatures to open doors and let reporters in and and have newspaper, you know, recordings of their deliberations. So the deputies who are coming to Philadelphia, they're aware of this and they're aware of these kind of changes and changing public expectations. But they still decide to close their doors. And again, they might have been worried about foreign spying. They're probably concerned a bit about their legitimacy, given their mandate to reform the Articles of Confederation and how many of them came there with intentions to do more than reform the Articles of Confederation, which, of course, they did. So these are all considerations. But one thing that I think is really important and that I emphasize in the book is that there's sort of this sense that the way to deliberate in the best interests of the people really requires kind of an insulation from the public in order to, as Madison put it in a letter to Jefferson, in order to secure unbiased discussion within doors, that they need to kind of eliminate public pressure or influence from outside in order to come hash things out, compromise, change their minds, reach a final product that then they can put out there for the public. So it really comes back to review of how they think deliberating in the name of the people should happen, which for them, you know, the common good emerges from that deliberation among them as wise, virtuous men who are sent there to discuss, you know, and come to these conclusions. It's not necessarily something that exists outside that they're trying to solicit and reflect in their decision making. So I think that's actually a really crucial reason that they closed the doors that hadn't been explored in much depth, I think, before. So was the Constitutional Convention more deliberative because it was held in private? Did it make a difference, the fact it was held in secret rather than in open? I know that we don't have a real counterfactual to be able to demonstrate, but what's your sense based on the notes, based on Madison's notes and others? Do you feel like it changed the nature of deliberation by holding it in secret? Yeah, I mean, James Madison certainly thought so. So later in his life, he actually wrote that he didn't think any constitution could have been agreed upon if they had not met in secret. So he really felt like it mattered a lot. And I think if we look back on it, I wouldn't say necessarily that it led to a better or worse outcome, but it was certainly significant in that it did, I think, facilitate a lot more compromising 
it definitely facilitated afterward an uphill climb for anti-federalists because, you know, then they're kind of presented with this document and many of them seize on the fact that it was written in secrecy to critique it and say, well, we didn't have any chance to offer our input on this. And now you're sort of just offering this to us and saying, take it or leave it wholesale. So it definitely had an effect, I think, in ratification and continues to have an effect on our ability to understand what were the intentions or sort of the exact meaning behind some of the clauses in the Constitution that are also worded deliberately, vaguely, often in ways that, you know, still make it very difficult to definitively settle, you know, what it might have meant. So it certainly, I think, had an effect on the Constitution. It also gave it this sense of kind of disembodied unanimity behind this document because it's hard to go back and look at the regular political process of kind of deal cutting and infighting different ideas that that led to it. You know, we can do that more now as more people who were there, their notes became published over time. But those are also very incomplete and fractured. So for a long time, I think People didn't really know what happened in the room. And and I think that did contribute a lot to giving this document sort of a sense of firmness and kind of unanimity that probably would have been harder if people knew the details of how it came to be. So I said earlier that there's not a counterfactual, and that's not completely correct because you do offer a different approach that was done for a constitutional convention in the book. You offer the case of France, which held the constitutional convention more or less that was entirely transparent. I mean, it was held in public where you had galleries and people able to offer their opinions throughout it. Why did they make that decision? Why was the attempt to write a constitution in France, why was that held in public rather than in secret like in the United States? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's interesting to think about that as a counterfactual example. I mean, of course, In some ways, yes, I am comparing them. But in other ways, the situation in France is very different from the situation in the United States. And that contributes to their reasoning for why they keep their meetings so open. You know, the Constitutional Convention meeting in Philadelphia, there's 55 men who start, at least, at the convention. In France, when the Estates General is convened by the king in 1789, there are 1,200 deputies. So if we're thinking about just the size of these meetings alone, regardless of if there is public attendance or not, that's a huge difference that's really going to change the dynamics of how something like writing a constitution will happen. Of course, the Estates General, they're also not convened specifically to write a constitution. Now, we could say neither are the framers. They're coming together to amend the articles. But the Estates General are invited there by the king to convey the grievances of the population you know, to the monarchy and work on reforms. While they quickly surpass that mandate and they dedicate themselves to writing a constitution, but the reasons for which they were formed, their structure, all of that is very different from the situation in the United States. But it very much contributes to their decision to hold all their meetings with open doors, to welcome petitioners, to have reporters in their deliberations. And all of this they view as helping to empower them in case the king tries to shut them down, which he does on numerous occasions. And they have to move to other makeshift meeting halls, like a tennis court at one point. And for them, it's really important that the public is there and they keep going out and assuring members of the public, we will always guarantee that you can be inside our meetings. And that gives them sort of a base of, you know, support to safeguard being just stymied by the king. And it serves that function 
But pretty quickly, it starts to pose problems for them as people really do follow what's going on in this assembly very closely. And almost immediately when they're debating, you know, in their new constitution, should we give the king veto power, for example, pretty quickly they start to receive petitions that come in saying, you know, you should absolutely not do this. And there's a sense that people are watching and they're expressing when they disagree with what their deputies are saying in the assembly. And they know what they're saying because they can read it in newspapers. Or if you're in Paris, you might be able to go there and watch what's happening once they move to the capital. So that has a very different effect. And I argue in the book, a destabilizing effect on their ability to form a foundational document or to legislate in the name of the people, because it feels like there's constantly this sort of discord between what the people or public opinion, and that's often the loudest kind of section of it, what they want and what the assembly is doing. And that makes it hard for the assembly to claim to be speaking for the people when there is this kind of constant sense of disagreement, actually, between what they're doing and what ostensibly public opinion wants them to be doing. What's so fascinating, though, is that the trajectory of France and the United States just go in completely opposite directions because France begins to become increasingly secretive. Can you explain how that happens, how France goes from being almost overly transparent in the beginning to becoming increasingly secretive as the French Revolution progresses? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as time goes on, as I was just saying, that there's this increasing instances of this perceived disagreement between public opinion and what elected officials are doing. And this really comes to a head when the king tries to run away and basically leave the country so that he can, you know, lead an invading army and retake over. Well, he's caught. And when he comes back, the National Assembly at that point declares, oh, he was actually kidnapped. He wasn't leaving of his own volition. That doesn't really fly with people. And there's a big kind of groundswell to get rid of the monarchy and to establish a republic. Well, the National Assembly decides not to do that. They're nearing completion of their constitution, and they say, no, we're going to keep the king as the head of a constitutional monarchy. And they move forward like that, and it just doesn't last very long. I mean, trust had just been eroded at that point, not only in the king, but at that point then in the deputies, who many people felt like were trying to pull one over on them or, or couldn't really understand why they were retaining this king when... He had clearly sort of abandoned the ideals or the goals of what they were doing. So once the Republic gets established in 1792, you see the faction called the Jacobins, who had been sort of the most radical members of the early French Revolution. They come to power in the National Convention. And once they're in power, they start to rethink things a little bit. And it's for a few reasons. I mean, one is that they are facing a lot of opinion hostile to their policies and their vision coming especially from the countryside and the provinces. Soon they're facing armed uprisings across the provinces resistant to what they are trying to do. And there's still this repeated crowd action in Paris. And there's this kind of sense that crowds are pressuring the deputies and kind of directing things. And so Jacobin leadership really decides we're trying to create a nation here. We're trying to create a people. We're in the midst of a revolution. And in order to do that, they say, we need to have a revolutionary government. Essentially, they kind of say the people aren't ready yet to lead themselves. And they kind of change the way that they talk 
or crucially not talk about, but practice representative politics. So they continue to say, you know, we believe in publicity, transparency. They continue to espouse these things. But in practice, they start to close off more and more doors to government deliberation. They concentrate a lot of power in the Committee of Public Safety, which is kind of often perceived as kind of led by Robespierre. And that committee meets entirely in secret. They're very, very secretive about what they're doing. And it reflects this sense that shifted among them, which is, you know, right now in the moment that we're in, we can't be reflective of the popular will or opinion. We can't work in that mode. We have to work in this insulated style that's curiously kind of similar to the framers and federalists in the United States who, you know, are avowed ideological enemies of these Jacobins. But in some ways, they're working in very similar fashions by actually adopting secrecy and using that to advance policies that they think are in the best interest of the people without having to constantly reflect or kind of go out there and answer to the public. It's fascinating because on the other hand, you have the United States, which is becoming increasingly open at the same time. There was already a movement to have greater transparency in terms of government at the state level before the Constitution. I think you mentioned that already. But After we adopt the Constitution, we have a federal government. It's not entirely open like the House of Representatives is. It has a gallery, but the Senate does not. It has its doors closed. But eventually, they even open. So in the United States, it feels like things are moving in the opposite direction, like they began more secretive and they become increasingly transparent as we kind of move forward. Why does that happen in the United States that way? Yeah, so it is. It is kind of an opposite trajectory there. So in the United States, there are just a lot more pressures going forward to open more doors and to adopt more transparency. And you see the Federalists, which had been the faction party that was more openly justifying of secrecy and talking about it having utility because it really aligned with their vision of this kind of insulated style of political representation. Repeatedly, they're pushed in the 1790s toward more publicity and toward going out and courting public opinion. And it's because the opposition frequently challenges them in this area. They're always advocating for greater transparency. Sometimes they'll leak things, you know, like a draft of a treaty. And then once they leak it, the Federalists realize they have to then put it out there and they kind of start to see that as a liability when they're keeping things secret. So the United States does kind of move in this direction of opening more doors. Now, the effects of that are, we might think, and I think a lot of advocates for that would have hoped, okay, well, that's going to change the way, you know, representation works. It's going to make things much more democratic and participatory. In some ways, that's true. And in other ways, as we would think even today, when you open doors to one space, you know, meaningful discussions or deliberation can move to other places that are still behind closed doors. So it's not, you know, a neat progression. And it can also have unintended consequences. And I kind of talked about that in the book, that there are some ways in which, you know, greater transparency, rather than empowering popular political participation, can actually sort of lead to a passive spectatorship among citizens and that it can also become very performative for government officials. So I kind of talk about, you know, when Thomas Jefferson comes into the White House as the president, He's a huge advocate of transparency and publicity, but in practice, he is very careful about curating, you know, these scenes for the public. And he's very guarded about his personal and private life, for example. 
So there is greater transparency, but it's also the meaning of that is also changed in the process of that coming to be. Let's talk some about this word publicity, because you go out of your way to explain early in the book that you're going to use the word publicity because it's the word that they use at the time rather than using transparency, which is something that we think of more today. What did they mean by publicity? Because when I think of it right now, it would be the government broadcasting their own views, which feels more like propaganda rather than being open about what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the modern connotation of the term publicity, and I would say this is even more so in the French, is almost advertising, or as you know, kind of propaganda. It is much more of this kind of broadcast. At the time, I think that that definition kind of comes out of a lot of these tussles that I write about in the book over trying to define exactly what it means. So at the time in the 18th century, they're not using the word transparency as they talk about in the book. That word has a very technical meaning for them. It's not really used in a political sense, but they're using publicity and often they're using that in contrast to secrecy. And they're using it to describe things like open meetings or things being known widely and not hidden or belonging to the state in some way versus private. So that's kind of the connotation of that term. And part of what I write about is kind of the struggle over defining what that term really is going to mean in practice. And there is this kind of struggle between people who are pushing for publicity to really mean an active dialogue or a sense of vigilance coming from the press or the public over government. And then you have on the other side kind of a push to define that term much more narrowly in the sense that it comes to be, you know, understood today, which is much more of a broadcast of something crafted for public consumption rather than transparency, the term we would use to connote more of these practices of just having open availability of documents or meetings and things like that. So yeah, part of the book is about how that term itself kind of changes and takes on a different meaning through these debates about these questions. Feels like because they were so new to the idea of representative government, that they were very naive about the ways that you communicate that message. Because if I think about the way that government would have worked early in the modern era, where you have a king who feels entitled to their rule because they've inherited their position. They don't feel the need to communicate or talk to their subjects because it's their right to be able to make these decisions. I mean, they're in that position based on birth rather than based on any kind of connection in terms of choice from the people. As you start to move towards representative government, not even democracy, but just representation, the people expect some kind of communication back from the government in terms of what they're doing. But because it's so new, they haven't really thought through the fact that the government might have interests of its own. They just assume that the communication itself will be a huge step forward for them because they're not getting anything from the Ancien regime, if you will, particularly in France, but really probably in most regimes in Europe and the United States and probably everywhere throughout the world. I mean, do you see it the same way that they're trying to work through how do we actually get information that's relevant that helps us understand what's going on? Yeah, that's something I also talk about in the book that I think it's no coincidence that we see at the end of the 18th century a real questioning of state secrecy. Whereas before that, I mean, in the early modern period, 
it was taken for granted that politics was kind of the realm of the state. You know, it was secret. And that's just kind of the way it was. And I think that that does come back to the point you were just making, which is the different structure of government. So, you know, a monarch's legitimacy is not staked on being chosen by or speaking on behalf of a people. It's hereditary. They're divinely sanctioned. So there's just not that same sense of where their legitimacy is coming from. That's not to say functionally that their legitimacy doesn't depend in some way on having broad support. But theoretically, that's not where their legitimacy is coming from. That really shifts when the government is representative. When representative government becomes conceived of as a tool to exercise popular sovereignty, which is what happens in the late 18th century, it opens a whole new set of questions, as you say. And I think that is why people start to question secrecy in that process, because if those representatives are speaking on behalf of the people, Shouldn't the people know what they're doing? Shouldn't they have a say in telling them what they want them to do? And so that kind of brings those questions to the forefront. And I think that then the practicalities of that become really challenging. What does that actually mean? And if you do have that kind of communication, that kind of transparency, well, that implies something then about how the government should work. And how elected officials should respond to or be listening to their constituents. And the question of, should they listen only to people who technically vote for them or should they be listening to all people who live in the community? So all of these questions become very vexing, you know, once you stake the legitimacy of the government on public opinion on the people in that way. It's also interesting the way that it develops within France, because as the government becomes more Republican, it becomes increasingly secretive. But as it becomes more autocratic, once again, under Napoleon, I mean, Napoleon is not transparent, but he definitely publicizes. And so what we see during this time, I feel like, is not just a change in terms of how we think about secrecy and we think about publicity and the media and information within democracies, but also how we think of it within autocracies as well. Yeah, absolutely. And Napoleon is a great example for thinking about what we were just discussing about the change in what publicity means and what is expected from that. So you're absolutely right. Like by the time that Napoleon comes to power, I mean, he relies in terms of how he's working and how that government is working. Very, very secretive. The legislature that exists during the consulate, for example, and kind of early in that regime, they're not meaning publicly. That is not what that means. But Napoleon is extremely reliant on propaganda, frankly, well-crafted sort of publicizing of himself and of his policies and regime. So yeah, you have a very different sense of what that actually means by the time we get to the turn of the century and see the rise of Napoleon. And it has kind of rendered citizens into more spectators. That kind of publicity, it's not inviting or implying that kind of dialogue. It is a one-way process by that point. Tell me more about this idea of spectacle, because I feel like it's something that we're experiencing a lot today with social media and 24-hour news. I think of some of the congressmen that exist today that take advantage of opportunities to be able to make statements both in Congress and outside of Congress, that they're using their position to be able to create a spectacle 
John Boehner talked a lot about that within his own party, the Republicans. We see that with the debate over the speakership recently. I feel like it's something that hasn't gone away. So tell us a little bit about how transparency and openness can create a spectacle and what exactly that means and how that's reflected in government. Yeah, I mean, this is something that's complicated from the start. And a lot of thinkers and revolutionaries in the 18th century, there is an awareness that when they're talking about transparency, that concept contains sometimes conflicting imperatives. So one, if you're talking about, you know, deliberations being open, people viewing them, that almost has an aspect of performativity to it. And then on the other hand, when we're talking about transparency, when they're talking about it, what they want to often secure is authenticity, truth. And sometimes those things are really intentioned. And they are aware of that at the time and they struggle with that. And I think we continue to struggle with that because a lot of the effect when things become transparent is to have that kind of performativity and to lead into spectacle, as you say. So a lot of revolutionaries at the time voice concerns about this, saying, well, you know, if we have an audience in Congress, then all these Congress people are really just going to go there and be concerned with kind of speaking to the gallery, be playing to this audience, you know, more worried about what someone might read in the newspaper that they said than actually talking to their colleagues or getting things done. And I think that resonates a lot with us today thinking about it that way. Whereas the other side of that debate at the time, you know, a lot of people said, no, but having this publicity, having this constant awareness in the minds of elected officials that they're being listened to or being watched, that is going to lead to more truth, more authenticity, because, you know, lies will be called out and you can't lie if everyone can see everything. Well, I think we look at that now and and really question that and say, well, eh, I don't know (laughs) if it has that effect, because In our recent experience, I think that doesn't really tend to be true. I try in the book to talk about that. Some of the potential, again, unintended consequences or ways that transparency can actually have outcomes that are, you know, dangerous to democracy, this kind of like spectacle and passive spectatorship among citizens of politics. I think it's important to also recognize how it's become so normalized within politics today. I kind of mentioned Matt Gates earlier. He's kind of an extreme example, and people would possibly think of him that way. I remember David Brooks, the commentator who writes for the New York Times, he's on PBS, was talking about Kamala Harris, who was at the time, I think, running for president, or maybe she had already become the vice presidential candidate with Joe Biden at the time. I'm not sure. He mentioned how her big claim to fame was not any legislative proposal that she had done, but a speech he had made in a congressional hearing, that those speeches were now things that people look to for signs of leadership rather than actual legislative accomplishments. So in a lot of ways, these concerns that existed as early as the late 18th century have almost become exacerbated in today's politics. They're actually even stronger today than they were at that time. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's a result of, you know, technological advancement, too. I mean, back in the 18th century, if you want to hear what your congressman is saying, you have limited options. I mean, if you're near Congress and you have the leisure time and ability to go there, you might be able to go and see what's happening. If you're in the room, it would be hard to even hear them because they don't have technology to amplify their voices. 
there's a lot of records about how the acoustics in Congress are terrible and it's very hard for them to even hear each other. So there's that element. And then also they didn't have things, obviously, like C-SPAN or television or even audio recording. So, of course, most people are reliant on the record of what was said that comes out in a newspaper, which is often delayed, which is often incorrect and which is often, you know, cut down and exerted because there's not a lot of space. So yeah, with time, it's gotten easier for us to know what our elected officials do say. And even in the 18th century, and I think this must just intensify with greater technology, there is this sense that they have, you know, in their minds that whatever they say is potentially captured. It's out there. And that these spaces like the floor of the house It is a performative space. It's not a private space. And I think that that does change the way that political debate and deliberation happens in those spaces, that awareness that it's public, that there's a record of that that people can see and will go to. And that really changes how people work in those spaces. I think it's hard for us to actually imagine what media was like at that time, because during the Constitutional Convention, they're not so much concerned about reporters finding out what's happening. I mean, there are newspapers, but it seems like they're more concerned about just rumors passing through word of mouth because people would write letters, people would have discussions, and people would just talk about it in taverns and things would just kind of pass through almost like a game of telephone where they might be working on one thing and then people are upset about something that's completely different because that's what the rumor has kind of developed into. Do you feel like the changing media environment, even during the 18th and early 19th century, really changed the views in terms of what transparency was actually possible to achieve at that time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when you have the development, especially going into the 19th century of a mass press or going into the mid-19th century, the telegraph, all of these things really change the accessibility of those records to broader groups of people. And also the speed at which things can travel and the perception of accuracy or not. So as you note, I mean, when things are traveling mostly through private letters, word of mouth, and even with early newspaper reports, there's often not a perception that, oh, I'm reading verbatim what someone said. There's a knowledge that there's some kind of interpretation going on there, that you're getting the gist of something, but you're not getting something verbatim. And as technologies develop, you know, today we have an expectation that we can go see verbatim, you know, what someone said at any point. But, you know, I talk a little bit about this in the book, and it's part of a project I'm working on now is thinking about early stenography. And actually, that's also emerging at the end of the 18th century in legislative reporting. And then you do have newspapers that start to print what are purportedly verbatim accounts of what is said. But because of the limitations in technology and the ability to do that, there's a real question there of how accurate that really is. And I think that that also points out something important, that once there's that perception of accurate verbatim accounts, that that also changes the way then people think about this news, what they're reading, even if that accuracy is not totally there. And I think even with our modern technology, that's something that we need to maybe keep in mind more than we do, that we have this perception that, you know, you watch a video, okay, that must be exactly what the person said. But of course, there's a lot of ways in which that's not 
necessarily the case. I mean, there's a lot of editing and especially now with new technologies like deep fake and all these things, we're entering into a new realm of having to really think about and question these kind of sources and what it means to have something that is an exact account or accurate for a place where you're not physically there at the moment. So I think often technology kind of over time tricks us into thinking, oh, we do have an accurate account of what happened here, but there's still so much space for, like you said, these rumors or conspiracy theorizing and stuff, because often it's a little bit more tricky to get an accurate account of what someone said in a particular space. I want to circle back to the idea of representation, because you note that there's two competing views of representation. On the one hand, there's the idea that these representatives are delegates, that they're able to make the decision for best interest and make the decision based on what they believe. And then on the other hand, it's more descriptive, where they're literally representing the views of their constituents. And I find that even today, we don't want to choose one or the other. We want the representatives to do both. We want them to represent us, and we want them to be making the decisions that they truly believe all at the same time. We want them to be authentically representing what we ourselves believe and making negotiations that we ourselves would have made if we were in those positions. But of course, that's not how things actually work. What are some of the conflicts that are happening as we're trying to? wrestle with these different views of representation that I think in a lot of ways still exist today. Yeah, absolutely. Part of what I was trying to do in the book is recover that tension between these two ideas of how representation should work, which I think became kind of subsumed under the mantle of representative democracy. And that's become very solidified. But to recover that there is that tension. And as you know, there continues to be that tension in how should a representative actually work? How do we actually want them to work? And I think you're right that we're just not very consistent on that. And you can see that in some cases we say, well, we want the president, for example, to make a decision based on the information that they have that we maybe don't have. Or we would say in a lot of cases that the best thing to do or the most just thing to do may not be the most popular thing and that we want our officials to do that. But then you have other cases where, you know, are sort of saying, well, they're just kind of trying to pull one over on us in doing something unpopular that, no, we want them to listen and see that that's not popular and then not do it. <laughs> so I think it's just really challenging. And I don't really know if there's ever a right answer on that. I mean, something that I found interesting in writing this book is following James Madison, actually, who really changes his mind about these questions as he goes over the course of his political career. I mean, he comes into the Constitutional Convention really having a strong sense of this insulated style of representation that representatives should go there and should use their own minds and that the common good, you know, what's best emerges from those debates. But then once he's working in Congress, he kind of becomes part of the opposition to the Washington administration, and he really changes his mind and he starts to feel like, no, actually, the best way to have a representative government is for those representatives to really try to seek out public opinion and to reflect that. And that's partly because he sees a lot of unpopular policies coming out of the Washington administration that he also opposes. And he starts to say, oh, no, if we give too much leeway to our elected officials, 
then we could, you know, really stray from what is best. So he starts to really kind of change his mind. And I think oftentimes it all comes down to, in any given situation, what side you're on about a particular policy question. You know, if you are on the side that is more ostensibly popular, then of course you say, I want my representative to listen to what's popular. If you're on the other side, then you tend to say, well, I think they should do, you know, this other thing, even though it's not popular. I don't know. I don't know that we'll ever really solve that. It's kind of a perennial challenge. I think it's also a challenge in terms of how we think about transparency itself, because on the one hand, we want to know what's happening. We want to know everything that's going on so that we can share our opinions about it. But on the other hand, we don't always want to know. Sometimes we want things to be scripted a bit more. I think the entire debate about the speakership is a great example where people were actually lamenting the fact that they were actually putting things to a vote in public and not just having the speaker settled beforehand. The conflict was so far out in the open, seemed unsettling to a lot of people. I mean, some people really enjoyed it and other people were really bothered by it. And it just kind of raises the question to me of how much transparency do people really want even within a democracy? Do we always want to know everything that's going on or do we want the questions somewhat settled so that we can know what exactly it is? that we're weighing in on before we actually share our opinions. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I've noticed in the last couple of years that you see this come up sometimes. I think it was in the first Trump impeachment that there was a lot of questions coming up saying, well, if the Senate voted in secret on this, probably the outcome would be different than if they're voting in public. And then you see kind of these debates about, well, would that be better, actually? Would that be a better outcome than having this kind of performative aspect to it? So I think that there is kind of a constant tension there. I mean, again, coming back to Madison, he definitely, you know, went from someone who felt like there's a big benefit to doing a lot of things behind closed doors for exactly these kind of reasons, kind of presenting more of a finished product, maintaining that sense of insulation and kind of safeguarding this legitimacy of these things. And then he really did a 180 on that. And he started to feel like there's too much danger in that. And again, you can see that in France during the terror when these Jacobins and governments start closing doors, that gets to an extreme, right? That shows the potential extreme danger of using secrecy in that way. So I think there is an extreme there. But on the other hand, to default to say we want everything to be open, you know, Madison came to say, you know, I think that's the least worst option um, is to you know default to more transparency. But it doesn't eliminate some of the potential negative impacts of that or the potential for that to have unintended consequences. And I think over the course of writing my book, I came to see that more. I think I also entered the project with a kind of default assumption, which I think is our common default assumption today, that more transparency is always better. You know, the legitimacy of the government is going to make it more democratic. And I came to see that as a lot more of a nuanced question coming out of working on this book. Even Madison, even though he evolved in his views and saw the benefits of more transparency. And to be fair, at the time, Washington seems like he was in favor of so little transparency that it probably made sense at the time to open things up dramatically, at least to the extent that they did. I mean, opening the doors of the Senate seems like something that should be happening within a representative democracy. But at the same time, 
Madison did not share his notes from the Constitutional Convention until after his death. So even though he did believe that transparency was something that we should be siding more with, he still didn't go all the way. He still saw the need for secrecy in some things. And it kind of comes back to one of the themes of the conversation is that transparency is good for democracy in some ways, and sometimes it might not be. And you have a line in the book near the end where you write, maybe democracy does not die in darkness, but in broad daylight. So as we look to wrap up, how does that change how we think about democracy? I think that it should complicate our thinking about what we mean when we use the term democracy. And I try to do that with the book to say there's one way of thinking about it, which is democratic processes. And I think that often that leads us to, you know, really champion transparency. That certainly led people in the 18th century to champion transparency. This notion of democracy, meaning how do we ensure the greatest level of participation and influence among the public in the government? And that the more you can do that, the more democratic the government is, and that that's a democracy. That is a democracy. But there are other ways of thinking about what a democracy is, too. And sometimes when we think about things more in the sense of outcomes, I think that gets a bit more complicated. If we're thinking about democracy as something broader that is producing equality, justice, or these kind of things, that often those kind of policies that we might describe as democratic policies can emerge from processes that are undemocratic. And I think that's uncomfortable for us to think about. And of course, it's not one-to-one. That's not always the case. But just to say that sometimes it can be. And I think that there's a tension over that within democracies. And I think that it's important for us to recover that and really think about what it is that we all mean when we use the term democracy and when we extol democracy and and think about it in that way. What is it exactly about it that we are celebrating or that we want to achieve? And where are some of those tensions within the concept? Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for talking to me today. The book, one more time, is Democracy in Darkness, Secrecy and Transparency in the Age of Revolutions. Thank you so much for writing the book. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. 
Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.